Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Working with Dante. And today's episode is, wow, 48 lines. I'm looking at the script. Holy crow, 48 lines of Canto 3. We have got Dante through the gates of hell, the long-promised through the gates of hell. And we are about to meet the first of the damned. And I, how long have I promised this? I don't know, but you have to wait a little longer, because this is... <laughs> This is my rough translation of the third canto. You can find this translation on my website, markscarpo.com. If you go there or you can look up walkingwithdante.com, it will point you right to my website. And if you look up the header, the subheader on the main page, the landing page, you will see Walking with Dante. You can go there and you can find this exact passage from the third canto in my translation or you're welcome to use other translations. Let me really recommend the Hollander's translation. There are others out there. You can look them up and follow along or just listen in. So finally, <laughs> I have given you a delay worthy of hell itself. Here we go. The 22nd line through the 69th line of Canto 3. Here sighs, cries, and high-pitched wailing resonated so loudly in the air without stars that I began to weep. Diverse languages, horrible accents, words of woe, cries of anger, voices shrill and throaty, and the sound of hands smacking swirled together in the storm through the stinking, timeless air, like sand spins in a hurricane. Misconceptions so shrouded my head that I said, Master, what do I hear, and who are these people so conquered by pain? And he to me, this is the miserable state of the sorrowful spirits who lived by avoiding both disgrace and praise. Mingled among them is the bad band of angels who neither rebelled against God nor were loyal to him, but were for themselves alone. Heaven rejects them to maintain its beauty, and deep hell will not accept them for fear that those down below might have something to gloat about. And I, Master, what so pains them that it makes them lament so loudly? And his response, I will be quite brief. Those here have no hope of death, and their blind life is so low that they are envious of every other state. The world above does not permit them to be known, Mercy and justice disdain them. Let's not talk about them. Look and let's go. So I looked again and saw a banner whirling around the perimeter so fast that it didn't seem able to come to rest. A long train of people followed behind the banner, so many that I had not thought death had undone so many. Some of them I recognized. I even picked out the shade of that coward who made the great refusal. I instantly knew with full certainty that these were the sorry lot who displeased both God and his enemies. These wretches, who were never really alive, were naked and stung all over by swarms of flies and wasps. Their faces were streaked with blood which mixed with their tears and streamed down to be sopped up at their feet by disgusting worms. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. I think that seems like a good chunk of hell. I think it seems very hellish fright from the start. We want to talk about that more in a minute. Uh, I want to divide this passage into a couple 
points. But before we get there, I want to say something else. This is a notorious sticking point, and I don't mean that this passage is so difficult. In fact, this passage is much easier in some ways than other passages we encountered in the first two cantos. A sticking point in that we've now got the plot rolling. We have got them into the first bit of The Damned, and there's always a bit, I find when I've taught comedy before, there's always a bit of a letdown right at this point. You need a little push, so let me push you. It's as if you've gotten your wish, you've seen the sinners who are being tormented, and now you think, wow, how much more of this poem is there? We'll talk about that in a minute. But again, recognize this is a stick point for the narrative. It's a tough point. Uh, It's a tough point for many people to get over because it seems like (laughs) their desires have been fulfilled. They got to see hell. And now what? (laughs) There's a lot more to come. Let me also say another word about that. Why were you so wanting to get to hell? I think that there may be something in the poem about that. Do you remember back in Canto 2 when Dante questioned why he was worthy of the taking on this journey? And he mentioned all that bit about Aeneas, a very long bit about Aeneas, and then a very short bit about St. Paul. And he offered these two as people who had seen the afterlife and how could he compete with them? Remember that bit? Okay, it's important to remember it because, <laughs> let me tell you, that Aeneas bit, as I told you, was much, much longer than the Paul bit. The hell bit, or the underworld that Aeneas visits, which looks much like the mouth of hell here, is much longer than the theological Paul bit. And at the time I made a thing, I think I made a big song and dance about political versus theological, and Dante's more interested at this moment in the political than the theological, but that's going to change, and yada, yada. I think that I did that whole thing in classical literature versus the Bible, and Dante's still more interested in that, and yada, yada. Okay, that's all great. But there's also a bit here about that Dante the Pilgrim is focused on the underworld and not on heaven. We get a bit about that at the end of Canto 1 as well. Remember, Virgil maps out how the journey's going to go through Inferno and then Purgatorio and Paradiso, and he he names the three states. And when Dante says, okay, well, let's go, because I want to see the ones in torment and I want to see St. Peter's Gate, which is in Purgatory. But I said again, Dante doesn't mention the blessed. Dante the Pilgrim is also more interested in hell than the saved, than the blessed, maybe like you. And I think that there may be a little bit of thematic narrative structure going on here, that hell just seems more interesting than heaven. And that's because you're not right in the head yet. Or in Dante's terms, you haven't read the poem yet. Now, remember, I'm not saying this because I'm holding to Christian tenets. I'm not saying this because I believe any of this. It's not, I don't. I am just saying that in the poem itself, the focus and direction toward hell may be slightly suspect. And we know that because the pilgrim himself is right here wrapped in error. The first moment he sees, the first response out of him is misconception. So let's go back and start it again. Here's sighs, cries, and high-pitched wailing resonated so loudly in the air without stars that I began to weep. 
Remember what we just had, what we just came out of, what we just passed. We just passed the moment in which they set off, and Virgil turned, and some people would say he smiled, uh, gave Dante a look of good cheer, let's say. That's immediately before this passage. Virgil's look toward Dante, taking his hand and saying, come on, let's go, and that look of good cheer, goodwill on his face, and the very next line is size cries, high-pitched wailing. There's a little bit of funkiness right here. The contrast between what just happened, Virgil's nice accepting smile or look on his face, and this high-pitched wailing, that contrast in a single line, basically, uh, from one stanza to another, is too big. Virgil seems out of sync with what's about to happen. Now, you could say that Virgil is spurring Dante on and he's, you know, saying, come on, let's go. And (laughs) I'm giving you a little smile to cheer you on the way. And oops, here we are. But it seems like that disconnect is strong. And I wonder in my head, I wonder if in the larger purpose of comedy, we're not to see that Virgil is slightly out of sync with what's going on. Maybe there's something about the palliative response of classical literature. That classical literature has a deadening or a palliative response when the world calls for a more, or the cosmos calls for a more dramatic response. I'm going to float that as a trial balloon. I don't know that I actually even believe it. And yet, it always mm, freaks me out here that Virgil, for lack of a better word, smiles, and then all of a sudden they're screaming. That, that jolt, that jolt from one to the other, always strikes me as rough. And it strikes me that Dante is too good a poet for it just to be a bit of rough writing. That there's a reason those are jammed up against each other. It used to be, back in the day, when I first studied medieval lit, there was a a theory that ran around. It kind of made the circuit for a couple of years on the medieval conference circuit about Gothic juxtaposition. That is that in Gothic architecture, you had to always have, think about the the, uh, facade of a cathedral. You have to have the devil with the saint. You have to have the virgin with Satan. You have to have some kind of juxtaposition between two figures on the facade of of a cathedral cathedral and maybe that's this maybe virgil is his smile versus the wailing is gothic juxtaposition i don't know it's just always wild to me it's so disjointed so you notice first of all there are only sounds sighs cries high pitch wailing they all resonate so loudly in the air without stars because we've come into a cave that i the pilgrim says began to weep It's important in Inferno to watch Dante's reaction to what happens because it's going to start changing as we go through Inferno. And his reaction is going to change. And right now, he's pretty much in sync with what's going on, right? There's all this pain and suffering, and so he's weeping. There's a problem there. The pain and suffering is of the damned. Why are you sympathizing with the damned? More on that later. Let's go on in the poem. Diverse languages, horrible accents, words of woe, cries of anger, throaty voices, shrill and throaty, sound of hands smacking, swirl together in a storm through the stinking, timeless air like sand spins in a hurricane. So it's overwhelming. Misconceptions so shrouded my head. And the word in uh, Tuscan is actually error. Error so shrouded my head. 
that I said, master, what do I hear? Who are these people so conquered by pain? This is where we're starting to get very, for lack of a better word, renaissance-y. Notice that emotional confusion precedes intellectual confusion. Pre the Renaissance, not exactly, so this is an overstatement, but in let's say in St. Augustine, it's the reverse. It's that intellectual confusion causes emotional confusion. The Renaissance reverses the narrative schema, and that Dante's emotions are out of balance then leads him not to be able to understand intellectually, error shrouded my head, what's going on. That is one of the most profound ways that Dante is, well, modern. Okay, moving on. And Virgil says, no funny voices this time, but Virgil says to Dante, this is the miserable state of the sorrowful spirits who lived by both avoiding disgrace and praise. You should know that this is a reference to what Protestants call Revelations, the book of Revelations in the New Testament. It's chapter 3. It's the letter to the Laodicean church. And there's this letter. There's these letters that start the Apocalypse of St. John to various churches. And the final one is to the Laodicean church. And the Laodicean church is said to be neither hot nor cold, but so tepid, so lukewarm, that God spits them out of his mouth. They are just so tepid that they are unpalatable to the divine. And this seems to be a reference to that. This is the miserable state of the sorrowful spirits who lived by avoiding both disgrace and praise. In other words, these people lived such a neutral life that they neither got infamy nor did they get blessing. They just got nothing. They were totally in the middle. Mingled among them is the bad band, Virgil says, of angels who neither rebelled against God nor were loyal to him, but were for themselves alone. Let me stop and say that this is unbelievably difficult territory. Dante is saying that when, if you know your Christian theology, certain angels like Lucifer rebelled, that there was another group of angels that didn't rebel. They just kind of hung around and well, they didn't pick sides. They weren't for God. They weren't for Lucifer. I don't know. I'll see who wins, right? Or I don't know. I'll just go with the flow. There's a lot of talk about this because it's not biblical theology. There are no angels anywhere in the Bible that are neither rebels against God nor loyal to him. And why they're in hell or in the gate of hell is a huge question. Uh, there are plenty of demons, as we'll get to down in hell, and there are plenty of angels up in heaven, but who are these that are neither for nor against God, but were for themselves alone? Heaven, Virgil says, rejects them to maintain its beauty. Wow, so it's an aesthetic question. And deep hell will not accept them for fear that those down below might have something to gloat about. In other words, if they got thrown into deep hell, people down there will say, hey, I was a real sinner. What's with you? You know, at least I murdered somebody. At least I stole. At least I, I don't know, grafted off the church. What's, what's with you? So that no one down below can gloat and that heaven can remain beautiful, all of these neutral spirits just stay here. I should note, we should note together, that this is the only moment 
in the entire comedy in which angels and humans freely mix together. It's right here in the porch of hell. We are not, and you'll discover this soon, we are not in one of the circles of hell. If you know anything about Dante, you know that there are the nine circles of hell. We're not in any circle of hell. We're kind of in the porch or the, I don't know, what the portico of hell. And in the portico of hell itself are these spirits that didn't pick a side. Dante goes on, Master, what so pains them that it makes them lament so loudly? And his response, I will be brief. Those here have no hope of death. It's curious, very curious. No hope of death. In other words, no hope of the final judgment. These are completely left out of the final death. Uh, the, the, in, in, in hell, we'll discover that the, everyone is anticipating the final death. That is the second judgment in which the world comes to an end. So these have no hope of death, and their blind life is so low that they are envious of every other state. The world above does not permit them to be known. Mercy and justice disdain them. Let's not talk about them. Look and let's go. Okay, let me just say that there is a problem here. And this is going to start to become thornier as Inferno goes along. And it is not a problem that Dante is going to solve or be able to solve until he's going to try to solve it up in uh, Purgatorio. Here's the problem. What is, uh, to use the Christian word, sin? What is it? Is it a choice? Is it making a bad choice, making a wrong choice, making a legal choice, making a choice that doesn't please God? Or is it part of your nature? Is it part of who you are? And we will see soon here that Dante is going to mix, I'm going to use the fancy words, the ethical and ontological notions of sin early on. Later, he's going to try to divide them. But right now, sin is going to be defined as both a choice and as a state of being. And here, we see souls that didn't make a choice. And so because they didn't make a choice, they can't be fully condemned. They can't be put into hell because they didn't really make a choice. And yet, isn't sin ontological? Isn't it passed down because of Adam's fall? These are thorny, thorny questions to be answered by any Christian. <laughs> I mean, Calvin will solve this. John, the, the, the Protestant theologian John Calvin will solve this by claiming that sin is just ontological. It's not ethical. It's not a matter of your choice. It's a matter of who you are, period. You are sinful, and God elects to choose some of you to come to heaven, but that has nothing to do with what you choose to do. God does the choosing. Here, we're getting this weird problem in Christianity that sin is both a choice and it's a state of being. And it seems right now it's coming really hard down on the choice. Because if these initial souls that we met are souls that never made a choice and angels that never really made a choice, then the nature of evil is the will is the choice, is decision. And what does that say of Adam's sin? And what does that say of the fall of mankind or the fall of humans? Very, very thorny. And I just want to prick ourselves with the thorn just right now because there's going to be so much more about this ahead. Okay, let's move on to the third part of this passage. 
So I looked again and saw a banner whirling around the perimeter so fast that it didn't seem able to come to rest. Notice that this banner has no insignia on it. This is important in any medieval ba battle. Uh, soldiers follow the banners. This will become really important when we come back to the Battle of Monteperti, way on down in hell. But the soldiers follow battle flags in medieval battles so that you can see it up ahead of you and you can know where the bulk of the force is and you can run for it or run behind it. In normal circumstances, this might be like, uh, let me say, so I looked and saw a CNE's banner, or so I looked and saw Satan's banner, or so I looked and saw the banner of, I don't know, the Spanish court. <laughs> <laughs> so you would see a banner and it would be defined in some way because it's the way you know what side it's on. But this is just a blank. It's a banner. I looked and saw a banner whirling around the perimeter so fast that it didn't seem able to come to rest. In other words, these people don't know who to follow. They don't have anybody to follow because what they're following is blank. A long train of people follow behind the banner. So many, and perhaps the most famous line in the entire comedy that I had not thought death had undone so many. I just want to pause on that line. I had not thought death had undone so many. We are standing on the porch of hell. And already the question is, oh my gosh, how many people have died? How many people are already gone? It's so hard to wrap your head around this that death is historically so prevalent. There are so many dead humans who have been on the face of this earth. And that line is so melancholy, so beautiful. We're not even into the afterlife yet. And already it's hitting the pilgrim. Wow, humans, well, to put it baldly, are born to die. I had not thought death had undone, unmade, unfastened so many. Some of them I recognized. I even picked out the shade of that coward who made the great refusal. This is a difficult stick point of anything in all the lines I read you. <laughs> this is the one that commentators always run to as a problem. Who is the shade or the shadow of the coward who made the great refusal? There have been many, many people who have been uh, posited as this person. Esau, who sold his birthright to Jacob for pottage, if you know your Torah, has often been, uh, uh, has often, has sometimes been thrown up as who this is. Another uh, that I actually tend to point toward is Pontius Pilate. There's problems with this being Pontius Pilate, but Pontius Pilate, who at the crucifixion of Jesus just basically threw his hands up and didn't choose and let the crowd choose Barabbas or Jesus and the crowd chose Barabbas and the crucifixion followed, but Pontius Pilate kind of just washed his hands of the whole matter. I kind of like that interpretation of who is the shade of the great of the coward who made the great refusal. Other people are chosen as uh, as this. Uh, the Emperor Diocletian, believe it or not, has been chosen as this person. And Pope Celestine V. And the reason Pope Celestine V is probably the most common person who is identified as the coward who made the great refusal is Celestine V is the Pope right before Dante's archenemy Boniface. 
And Celestine V actually renounced the papacy. There's a whole story. It may be apocryphal about how Celestine V renounced the papacy. It may be that Boniface um, whispered through the bricks of his chamber, at least so the apocryphal story goes, and Celestine eventually decided to refuse the papacy, and he gave it up. He renounced his papal crown, and Boniface became the pope who became Dante's nemesis. So is this the coward who made the great refusal? Many, many commentators think so. Dante's own son, one of his sons, Pietro di Dante, who wrote some one of the first commentaries on comedy, uh, he waffles between Pope Celestine V and Emperor Diocletian. I tend to come more down for Pontius Pilate. Let me just say that what we know about this person is that he is a coward. Vilta is the word that's used, cowardice. He's the shade who is full of of vilta, of cowardice. It is a failure of the will. Uh, uh, The uh, Hollander translates or links this word vilta to vile, as in not noble. And that's, to me, right on the money. This person is vile. He's cowardly because he hasn't made a decision. But great refusal sounds like a decision, right? It sounds like you decided to do something. So this person stepped back into cowardice. The reason um, Celestine V is, uh, is sometimes not seen as this person is because Celestine V left the papacy, went on to found an order of extreme piety, and was finally canonized in 1313. Some people say Dante would never pick a canonical figure to be put here on the portico of hell, a saint, somebody who has been sainted by the church. Um, And that happened in 1313 before the comedy was finished. And surely Dante didn't mean that person. And I have to say I'm not dissuaded by that. What I do know is that this person somehow made the great refusal because of vilta cowardice. And here's what I do know, that Dante has already been accused of cowardice twice. Go back to Canto 2. Dante's hatred is directed toward those who don't pick a side. It is clear from his own exiled status. And it is clear here that these people are so vile, they don't even deserve hell poem going on. I instantly knew with full certainty that these were the sorry lot who displeased both God and his enemies, these wretches who were never really alive. What? Never really alive? We're going to come back to this later in hell. We're going to discover that there is a way that you can walk around this earth without actually being in your body. (laughs) How's that for ghoulishness? Uh, Or that your body can walk around without you really being inside of it. That's a better way to say it. And uh, we're going to see this again, this notion of life as being lived but not really lived. It still rings as strange. These wretches who were never really alive were naked and stung all over by swarms of flies and wasps. I mean, persistent small irritants that reflect the smallness of these lives. Their faces were streaked with blood, which mixed with their tears and streamed down to be sopped up at their feet by disgusting worms. The, the, the moral decay, the spiritual insignificance, maggots, wasps, flies, blood, tears, all sopped up decay. These people are not worth looking at. And again, I just want to say Dante's hatred is reserved for those who do not pick a side. But there's one more little problem here. 
This guy that made the great refusal, the coward that made the great refusal, this is at its core, and I think this might be important, a moment of failed paraphrastic phrasing because I can't come to terms with it. And it's not just that I'm too far away from this to come to terms with who this is, because Dante's own son couldn't come to terms with who this is. It's not historical distance that's causing this to be cloudy for me. It's that the paraphrastic phrasing is falling apart. And that there is a way, hmm, let me just say, in which this failed paraphrastic phrasing, well, it's hard to say, failed paraphrastic phrasing is Dante's exemplified way of refusing to take a side. Dante, wow, the pilgrim himself standing here who is not going to name this spirit is himself being neutral in some way. That's a lot to say, and there are many who would disagree with this. Many people want to see Saint Dante from the opening of the poem. I do not. And that the pilgrim here refuses to name this spirit strikes me as part of, well, <laughs> a kind of great refusal or remaining neutral or your neutrality has broken your rhetoric and caused your paraphrastic phrasing not to work because your neutrality is so pronounced here. If that's the case, then the poet standing behind all of this and writing it is far smarter than we might even first imagine. Let me say one more moment about this opening scene. Why this opening scene of wasps and blood and gore and disgusting and screaming and wailing and, well, several reasons. One, it establishes the central theology of hell, which is an ethical theology. That is, you're in hell because you chose something. You chose the wrong way. And that's what got you into hell. And it establishes that because the opening sequence is about a failure of the will, in this case, not even to choose. So it establishes this kind of ethical centrality of choice to the nature of hell itself. It also introduces the first time that, this is a big word and I haven't introduced it yet, but it introduces the first instance of contrapasso. That is, that the, how do I say this, the punishment fits the crime. We're going to get to this over and over again, that the damned suffer punishments that resemble the sins that they're damned for. And here, the pettiness, the small irritants of wasps and flies reflect on the pettiness of these people. But also, let me offer a third rationale for this opening scene. We got the hell we wanted. Here it is. Here's the screaming, the wailing, the gnashing, the blood, the gore. Here's the torture. Here's all that stuff that you think of when you think of hell. In other words, we got out of the way the standard representation of hell. Or let me put it another way. Dante dispensed with the notion of this kind of standardized hell. From here on out, the imagination of the poet will become increasingly engaged until hell will become an 
unbelievable landscape of imagination. Getting rid of the cliché up front allows greater imaginative space for what's to come. And oh my gosh, what's to come? The lustful, the gluttons, the hoarders, the avaricious, the angry, thieves, murderers, blasphemers, and yes, homosexuals. What's yet to come? So, so very much is yet to come. And to have dispensed with a kind of cliched look at hell is to allow the imagination now to have its full engagement. Here it is. Here's the hell you wanted. Wait till you see what comes next. To do that, you'll need to stick with the podcast Walking with Dante. We're going to walk on and get off this porch, which is so full of flies, like every porch in the South when I was a kid. It's so full of flies with wasps up in every corner that seemed to torment me as a kid. Maybe I was a neutral as a kid. Anyway, we're going to get off this porch and we're going to go on down into hell. I hope you subscribe to the podcast. Please rate it. I could use a great rating. I could use a comment. I could use any rating, actually, or any comment whatsoever. To continue the conversation with me, check me out on any social media platforms as well. Any Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under my own name. I'm happy to connect with you there. Or go to the website, walkingwithdante.com or markscarbro.com. Look up the header, Walking with Dante. There's an episode. There's this episode. Every episode of the podcast is there, and we can continue the discussion. I can talk to you, and you can talk to me there or in social media. I'd be glad to connect with you anywhere, and I would be most glad to see you back on the podcast, Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.